What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? Mark, what the hell's going on this week? Well, we are talking about the pandemic with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, our AEI colleague, former FDA commissioner, who has a brand new book out called Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. You know, we're in a period of time where the public health establishment and public health experts have really not crowned themselves in glory. They've gotten a lot of things wrong. They've given us a lot of bad advice, a lot of conflicting advice. They've made recommendations, withdrawn recommendations, and people are really not trusting so-called public health experts these days because our economy has suffered and people's lives have suffered, not just because of the virus, but because of the government's inept response to the virus. And in that sea of incompetence, stands an island of competence named Scott Gottlieb, who in real time while this pandemic was unfolding, starting in like late January, early February, was publicly calling out the experts and saying, are you sure when you say this virus is not spreading in our country, which by the way, Dr. Fauci and all the public health experts until early March were saying with great confidence, there's no community spread of SARS-CoV-2, the virus, in the United States. We don't see it. He's saying, are you sure? They were testing people who were coming in on flights to prevent it from coming in because they thought it was spreading. And Scott was saying, we really ought to be doing widespread testing of the general population. We had a flu surveillance system that they were relying on which basically when people come in with respiratory illness to the hospital, they say, okay, this is respiratory virus. We're seeing it. They weren't seeing it because it was spreading asymptomatically, which flu does not do. And so they were missing all these things early on, which if they had not missed them, this pandemic would have not nearly been as bad. Scott didn't miss them. He got these things right. He was writing in the Wall Street Journal. He was putting it out on Twitter. He was on CNBC and other networks talking about this. And so he's now published a book where he talks about why we got it wrong and how we can fix the system so that we don't get it wrong the next time. Because, you know, we keep saying once in a generation pandemic, not so sure that that's the case. I think this is not about how great Scott is. I mean, he is a terrific colleague. I think the world of him and you all will get a chance to judge for yourself because he's our guest today. But it is about how... How bad everyone else is. How bad everyone else is. You know, I'm sorry. When we are able to point to a voice of reason It is right to ask yourself, much as you and I have said repeatedly over the great Biden and Trump fight, can't we do better than this? And I think that's very true in the public health world as well. The thing that really bothers me as well is that our federal health officials and our state level health officials have taken no ownership of the mistakes that they've made. You know, Fauci continues to swan around preening book contracts and all. With his halo. Right. But the CDC, which truly deserves disproportionate blame. The World Health Organization, which truly deserves disproportionate blame, are both still skating scot-free from any blame, and there's been no introspection. You know, you can't get everything right in government. You can't get everything right in any situation. 
But you can learn from your mistakes. And the one thing that I don't see is that there is a learning process. Instead, what I see is politicization and defiance. Well, here's the thing. So he uses a phrase in the book that I find really compelling called the fog of viral war. And it brings to mind something that we focused on a lot on this podcast, which was the disaster in Afghanistan, right? So we got it wrong. The Biden administration didn't realize Kabul would fall, that giving up Bagram was a bad idea, that how quickly the Taliban would come to power and all the rest. They made absolutely catastrophic mistakes, and they haven't taken responsibility for those mistakes either. But the reality is, is that in the public health world, they have made equally catastrophic mistakes. The handling of this pandemic in the early stages, you can say that it was fog of war, but the fog of war cost you know, 700,000 American lives because we got this catastrophically wrong. And just as you know, we're going to have hearings on the Afghan withdrawal and what went wrong and why we got it so wrong, just as we need to call the generals to account and the intelligence people to account and the president to account for his mishandling of the Afghan withdrawal, people need to be held to account for their mishandling of the pandemic, for telling us until March 10th or March 9th, not spreading here. In March, Dr. Fauci said, if you want to go on a cruise ship, go on a cruise ship. If you're a young, healthy person, don't change your life. And that was catastrophically bad advice. So stupid and resulted, obviously, in a lot more people dying than needed to, even in the best of circumstances. So for a lot of us, I think there's a debate, a debate within our families, a debate within our communities about when this ends, whether mandates are the right choice, what should we do about schools, what should we do about kids. We see doctors, nurses refusing to be vaccinated. We see this public debate going on. We see this fight going on very, very much at the state level. And we are still seeing a lot more people than should be, than need to be, dying of this virus. We talk about all of this with Scott Gottlieb. Mark's already introduced him and his bio. But again, the title of his book is Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. Here's our interview. Scott, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You got a new book out. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> really exciting. It's, it's, it's really exciting. I'm honored that you let me uh, read an early copy of it. And when I was reading it, one of the things that I noticed was how you're too modest to say this so directly, but I will, is everybody in the public health establishment got this pandemic wrong and you were getting it right in real time. They were searching for people with symptoms. You were warning about asymptomatic spread. They were focused on screening travelers. You were pushing for widespread testing at home. They didn't believe the virus was spreading here when you were warning that it was. In fact, there was a specific moment you did a February 20th op-ed in the Wall Street Journal raising concerns that the infections were a lot more widespread than the CDC said they were. And the next day, Dr. Fauci was on CNBC and he said that wasn't the case. It's extraordinarily unlikely. He said that if the people were infected in the United States were not identified, isolated and traced, you would have almost an exponential spread of infection, which we're looking for. We have not seen that. So it's extremely unlikely it's happening. Why were you right and Dr. Fauci was wrong? Well, look, I, I think that the issue wasn't that public health officials were wrong. We were dealing with imperfect information. And the bottom line is the advice we were getting, the decisions we were making weren't well-informed and in many cases were wrong. I think that the issue is that well, public health officials were speaking with a level of certainty that the data that they had at the time didn't support and that we didn't surface new information quickly enough to actually recalibrate our positions. And so we were putting in place assumptions and guidance based on imperfect information, not being fully transparent about 
the imperfect data on which these decisions were based, speaking with a lot more confidence about the pronouncements than perhaps the science supported, and in not re-adjudicating it. This happened multiple times with the kind of guidance that was being issued to the public. You know, is six feet the right distance or three feet? Is it spreading through contaminated surfaces or through aerosols? How much is asymptomatic transmission driving the epidemic? What are the circumstances in which people are getting infected? So time and time again, we were slow to surface this information. And when we did put out statements and guidance to the public, it was only partially informed and sometimes ill-informed. Final point on this, if you look at, and you know this world, if you look at an intelligence estimate from the CIA, you'll make an assessment. They'll say, we assess X, Y, and Z, and we assign a moderate degree of certainty to our estimate. They'll give a sense of what the level of certainty is. And if you're looking at the classified data, you'll get raw information or some level of information that's going to inform the level of certainty that the intelligence briefers have. You don't see that in public health. What you were seeing from CDC was guidance and pronouncements that they didn't explain the underlying science that supported it. So people couldn't make an independent assessment about which guidance had more veracity than other pieces of guidance so they can make judgments about where they were going to focus their energies. And, you know, Florida, for example, made a judgment that three feet was an appropriate distance for students to be based apart in schools, and that allowed them to open their schools. Every other jurisdiction tied themselves to the CDC guidance, said we have to keep kids six feet apart. And because of that single recommendation, many school districts can open around the country. But that six feet, that requirement, where did that come from? That came out of nowhere. That wasn't based on any science at all, was it? It was based on science, but it was based on imperfect science, and that wasn't really well explained to the public. And if you go back and look at the CDC's recommendation on six feet, they don't explain where it comes from. So the, you know, the sort of media and public health communities left scratching their heads. The presumption is that it came from studies looking at droplet transmission in the setting of flu. We now know COVID spreads perhaps primarily, but certainly to a large degree by aerosols, not droplets. So six feet isn't going to be much better than 10 feet if you have aerosolized spread and you have a person in a confined space who's exuding aerosols. And those studies were old. They were imperfect studies. Initially, CDC, and I talk about this in the book, initially CDC had gone to the White House and made a recommendation to the White House that they wanted to say that people had to be 10 feet apart. And it was Russ Voigt, the acting head of OMB, who said to them, this is inoperable. We cannot go out with a recommendation that people have to maintain 10 feet of distance. They can't implement it. Nobody can measure 10 feet. The economy would shut down. So the compromise was around six feet. Now imagine if that detail had leaked out at the time. Imagine if it had become known that the White House was pushing back on CDC and urging something less than 10 feet. People would have said, CDC wanted 10 feet. How could political appointees question the science and the scientists at CDC? Yet the 10 feet was an imperfect judgment. The six feet was an imperfect judgment. CDC finally re-adjudicated this. So I think this was the single costliest piece of guidance that's issued in the entire pandemic, the requirement for six feet, because it also forced a lot of businesses to have to close as well, and a lot of offices to have to close. CDC finally re-adjudicated this in the spring of this year, when the Biden administration rightly wanted to open schools and recognized that the six feet requirement was the impediment to a lot of school districts opening. And so CDC re-adjudicated and came out with a judgment that they said if kids are masked in a school, then three feet would be an appropriate distance. And they based that recommendation on a study that they had done the previous fall. So sometime in September, they had done a study where they showed that if you have two people wearing masks three feet apart, you can have a 70% reduction in transmission through a combination of the three feet of distancing and the masks. So they said, well, if kids are in the class and they have masks on, three feet can be appropriate, which begs the question, if they had that piece of data in the fall, 
Why did they wait until the spring to update the recommendation until they got pushed by political officials in the Biden administration? So it just shows how arbitrary this is and how much this is an imprecise science. And that's fine. We're in the fog of viral war. We're learning as we go. There's a lot we don't know. We weren't adequately prepared. We don't have the right institutions, the data collection, but we need to sort of admit all that. And when we issue recommendations, we need to say what the level of certainty is. And if it's imprecise and uncertain, the public ought to know that. That's what leads to the erosion of public trust, the sense that people told us one thing and it ended up being another. And they seemed so certain at the time that they told us this. So, Scott, first of all, thanks for being with us. This is a fantastic book, and I join Mark in recommending it to anybody who really wants to understand what happened here. I want to pick up on exactly what you said, which is the loss of faith in government, in authority, because that was the theme, obviously, already long before COVID. And I think COVID has exacerbated it. You remember the sort of sanctimonious lawn signs that said, I believe the science and, you know, believe Dr. Fauci. And yet, as you rightly say, a lot of what they were saying was fuzzy. It was a best guess, but it certainly wasn't the gospel handed down by the viral gods. And what I ask myself is now we're not out of this yet. Now, as we confront the Delta wave and maybe even, although I know you've said that you're, you're not convinced there will be another, but other variants or another pandemic, how do we face up to this given the loss of faith in government on these questions? Well, I think there's a fundamental issue here, just accepting that there's been an erosion in public trust of public health institutions and public health officials. And this is more than a right and left debate. Certainly, it's more on the right. You see more skepticism on the right. But this transcends political boundaries. I think this is much broader. And, and my book talks a lot about what was wrong, the sort of systematic features of government that were ill-prepared for this pandemic, and then how we strengthen them, how we make that better. But a lot of the recommendations are predicated on making institutions improved, you know, building out new capacities in CDC. And the presumption there is that you're going to be empowering public health officials in the setting of a public health crisis if you're going to be actually solidifying some of these public health institutions to do an appropriate job in pandemic. I think that there's going to be a large swath of the public that's very skeptical now of strengthening public health institutions and empowering public health officials even further because of the sense that, you know, it wasn't clear, it wasn't truthful, it wasn't reliable. The public health community is going to need to look at this and sort of acknowledge the erosion in public trust. And I think start to consider how they communicate better and engage the public better. And this idea that there is a, sort of a truth standard, and if the scientists say X or the public health officials say X, that is the truth, that's what I think is corrosive. There are clearly things that are true and things that we should have done collectively, even if the science was uncertain. I think we should have been wearing masks in the setting of a raging pandemic. The masks were incrementally helpful. We can debate how helpful they were, but if you had a high-quality mask on, you were going to derive some benefit from it and was going to reduce transmission as long as it didn't change behavior in a way where people were now engaging in much riskier behavior. But that's a function of properly educating people about how to use the mask appropriately. But, you know, because we didn't, we, we didn't have sort of a candid discussion about what the masks did and what they didn't, I think that led to an erosion in trust around the masks. And we got into this sort of debate about how effective the masks are. Then there were other things where it was far more speculative, and I think we should have been more clear about that, and we weren't. We would sort of talk with a level of certainty. And just to sort of go back to where Mark set it up at the beginning, that moment where you know 
Tony Fauci, Dr. Fauci did that hit on CNBC. I came on right after. So the op-ed had come out the day before. Dr. Fauci was on CNBC at night. I was hitting right after. And his level of certainty reflected the level of certainty of many people over that time period. That famous press conference with Nancy Messonnier at the CDC when the market swooned when she said that community spread is inevitable and we're going to have to adjust our lives. And so the market sold off dramatically. That's the famous moment when President Trump was coming back from India and put a pause on further action and then put the vice president in charge of the COVID response in the task force. If you actually listen to that press conference, before she said community spread is inevitable, she said almost to a quote, she said, but to this date, there is no community transmission in the United States and our containment efforts are succeeding. That wasn't true. There was community spread in the United States. We didn't know it, but we didn't even have the tools to know it. So there was no way we could be certain that there was no community transmission. And we should have assumed that there was. Given everything that was happening around the world, we should not have assumed that we were keeping this virus out of the United States. Yet all the public health officials were talking with a level of certainty that just didn't exist. And where this became operative, after that hit with Tony Fauci, after I did my hit on CNBC, I was coming home and I called a senior White House official. I was upset by the level of certainty. And I said, how could you guys be so certain that there's no community transmission? You know, people are hearing this message and the White House officials said to me, look, we're pushing the public health officials and they keep saying they're looking at the influence-like illness surveillance system. They don't see any signal of spread. That's a very imprecise system. I talk about how that really isn't a good gauge in a book. And they, they keep telling us there's no spread in the United States. They're not seeing it. And so afterwards, I did the only thing I can do. I put out a series of tweets which basically said, you know, if you're a healthcare provider, I know public health officials are talking with a high degree of certainty that there's no spread, but be careful, take precautions. Because my concern was that we're going to have doctors and nurses in New York seeing people with respiratory diseases in the emergency room. And since they were hearing that there's no community transmission, they were going to assume it couldn't possibly be the novel coronavirus, which in fact it was. So I love the phrase that you use in the book, the fog of viral war. And some of this was, in fact, the fog of viral war. But a lot of people suspect that some of it wasn't. Like, for example, you were very early on urging masking. And the public health establishment was very resistant to it. And Tony Fauci actually did an interview where he said, well, if you put on a mask, then uh, you're more likely to touch your face since you actually could spread the virus more than stop it and that masks don't work. And a lot of people suspect they were worried. They knew that like these cloth masks and bandanas and other things don't work, which we now know is the case. And they were worried that there was going to be a run on the N95 masks and the health workers needed that. And so if they recommended masking, then there would be no N95s for the health workers. So I think they intentionally lied to us about the effectiveness of masks. So if you're going to lie about that, what else are they not telling us the truth about? I mean, I think a lot of people have that suspicion. Look, I wouldn't say we were lied to, the American people were ever lied to. I think that it imputes sort of motives that just weren't there. I think people were well-intentioned and not exercising perfect judgment and not drawing the right conclusions. But I think the mask debate was a little bit more nuanced because I was involved in this at the time, talking to the task force, trying to encourage them to adopt some mask recommendation. And it wasn't just that they were worried that they wouldn't work or that there'd be a run on N95s, although I think that that was certainly part of it. And the CDC initially told airlines that they couldn't have flight attendants wear masks because it would encourage more touching the face, exactly the point you made. They were worried that at the time, the official advice from the task force was stay home. We're trying to get people not to go out, go to the grocery store less, stay at home, don't go out. And they were worried that if they came out with a message, wear masks, they'd be saying, stay home, you can go out if you wear a mask. And they were worried that the 
recommendation to wear a mask would be a mixed message and actually be sort of subtly telling people, no, no, it's okay to go out after all, as long as you have a mask on. And it would conflict with the primary guidance that they wanted to achieve, which was people should stay at home. That was the conflict, as it was told to me. You were involved in sending the report that we did where we made that recommendation. AI put out that report to the president, and then he was famously asked about it in a press conference. And two days later, the task force made the recommendation for masks. But here again, we didn't properly educate the public and we weren't properly transparent. The initial idea of the masks wasn't that if you, Mark, wear a mask, you're going to be protected from getting COVID. The initial idea was that if you, Mark, go out and you're infected with COVID and don't know it, you're one of these asymptomatic people that's going to go on to spread the virus and you have a mask on, the mask and even a cloth mask will reduce the likelihood that you're going to spread the virus. And for that purpose, the cloth mask actually provides benefit. There's data from OSHA studies that are actually pretty good that show that a cloth mask, a high-quality cloth mask, can reduce transmission of flu by 50%. I know it's not fully transferable to coronavirus, but it's at least partially transferable. So if you're infected and you have a mask on, it's going to reduce the likelihood that you spread the virus. But it's not going to – where you wearing a cloth mask, if you're talking to someone who has COVID and doesn't have a mask on, that cloth mask isn't going to afford you a tremendous degree of protection. A high-quality cloth mask will maybe give you 20% protection. I think that's on the high end. A level three procedure mask, medical mask, level three high-quality medical mask will afford you about 40% protection. That's well studied because the medical masks obviously go through an FDA validation process. And an N95 mask, if you're wearing an N95 mask and you're talking to someone who's unmasked and exuding COVID aerosols, that'll give you 95% protection. So if you want to protect yourself, the name. you've got to wear, <laughs> wear a high-quality mask. Yeah. If your only goal is to protect others from you, then the cloth masks provide a benefit. But we did not communicate that to the public. We didn't explain to the public why we were recommending masks clearly. So people thought that they were being asked to wear the mask to protect them. And really, they were being asked to wear the mask to protect others from them. So, you know something, though, Scott, I remember we had you on at some point earlier on in the pandemic, and you uttered these exact words. You went through the stats, and I remember because Mark went out and bought a whole bunch of N95 masks <laughs> at your recommendation, and you were 100% right. Now, you know, all right, fine. You're a guy. You know, yes, you have stature in a former position. But at the end of the day, if you were able to draw those sort of intelligent conclusions working in a think tank, then I think it is right for the public to question why it was that our institutions that we fund with our tax dollars are not actually able to articulate the same intelligent thoughts. But I actually want to ask you something for the future. We've been a little bit retrospective here, but one of the questions we asked you persistently, and I know others have asked as well, is this light at the end of the tunnel question. You know I'm from Australia. I look at Australia, and it is, uh, we have an, we have an explicit, explicit rating, don't we? Yeah. A shit show from hell in terms of how they're managing both expectations and COVID zero versus living with COVID. But even we are still in this sort of weird place where we don't know what's necessary, what to do, or what the light at the end of the tunnel even looks like. What do you say? Well, look, we are going to transition from the pandemic, at least here in the United States and the West. The rest of the world is more challenged because they haven't been able to deploy vaccines in a lot of countries. But at least here in the U.S., we're going to transition from the pandemic to the endemic phase of this virus. When this coronavirus becomes a persistent menace, but it's not going to be spreading and causing the extreme death and disease we see right now. The only thing that could change that outlook is going to be a new variant that 
substantially pierces the immunity offered by vaccination and by prior infection that comes along and spreads very aggressively. I don't think that's going to happen. That's a tail risk. It could happen. But I think what's more likely to happen is we're going to see this Delta lineage, this Delta variant evolve slowly over time and find ways to slowly evade our immune protections. And we'll have to update our vaccines in the future, probably using a Delta variant as a backbone to a future vaccine, maybe for the fall, you know, 2021, 2022 COVID season. But assuming that this is right, and we on the back end of this Delta wave, this is the last major wave of infection, prevalence declines, this becomes a persistent menace. The question is, when does society sort of readjust and accept the fact that coronavirus is going to spread, people are going to die from it, we're not going to be able to fully protect ourselves from it, but it's going to be something manageable like the flu. We're going to have to do things differently. We're not going to be able to be so cavalier about the spread of respiratory pathogens in the wintertime, but this will be a manageable threat and we'll be able to better protect those who are most vulnerable to it. I think two things need to happen. One is we need to have a vaccine available for children. I think a lot of the residual anxiety in society right now among even people who've been vaccinated is that kids are unvaccinated, they're vulnerable. And people are rightly worried that even if you're vaccinated and the vaccines are protecting you from severe disease and hospitalization and you know you're not going to get really sick from COVID, you still know that if you go out and about, you can develop a mild or asymptomatic infection, bring it back into your home, potentially expose your kids. So I think that that is going to be an important achievement, getting a vaccine available for children, because people who are worried about COVID, many of them are worried about it for their kids. And I think the other is harder to sort of measure and articulate and gauge when we're going to achieve it, which is culturally, we're going to have to come to accept that there's going to be a measure of spread and that the measure we should be using to try to gauge how much of an impact it's having on society isn't infections, isn't cases, maybe even isn't hospitalizations, but is deaths and severe outcomes. Because there's going to be hospitalizations every winter with coronavirus. People are going to get it. But I think after we have a wave of immunity sweep over the population through vaccination and unfortunately through infection, the overall impact on society is going to be sharply reduced. You're seeing it already, but it's going to come down even more. I think the Delta wave is finding its way into crevices of vulnerability, but on the back end of it, you're going to have a population that has 85%, 90% immunity to coronavirus, at least some level of immunity. So you mentioned kids. I looked at the CDC data this morning. There are a total of 544 kids aged 0 to 18 who have died with a COVID-19 diagnosis code in their records, not from COVID necessarily, but with a COVID diagnosis. That's out of like 700,000 people who've been killed. CDC has no idea whether that's incidental or causal. They have no record of whether those kids had pre-existing conditions. Do we know if a single American child, healthy American child, has died from COVID, not with COVID, but from COVID? Look, many kids have certainly died from COVID. You look at MISC-C and some of the devastating immune-related phenomena that kids got from COVID, and it's very clearly from COVID, and died from COVID. You know, look, the 540, I've heard higher estimates, kids who've died from COVID, granted it's been over successive waves of COVID, is tragic. But I think the focus on that is the wrong measure of trying to gauge whether or not this is dangerous in kids. The bottom line is, this is a dangerous virus. We should try to avoid a circumstance where this mass infects the population of American children. You could take any virus, enterovirus, echovirus, Coxsackie virus, and when they become epidemic in a population of kids in a community, you see sequelae from that. You see certain small number of kids emerge with long-term consequences. I worry this virus is going to be no different. This virus is sinister. 
We're already seeing persistent symptoms. We haven't really defined what long COVID is, but there's clearly some cohort of people with persistent neurological symptoms. It might be, you know, 2% in children, 1%, some of the data coming out of the UK. But if we mass infect 50 million American kids with COVID and 2% end up with persistent neurological symptoms or even 1%, that's an extreme amount of morbidity to impose on the population. So I don't think we should be cavalier about this virus in kids. I think we should do what we can to try to prevent kids from getting infected. I think we should try to buy ourselves some time till we get to a vaccine so parents at least have the discretion to vaccinate their kids and not allow this to rip through the schools this fall. So if there's things we could be doing to reduce the risk in schools, I think we should do it. We shouldn't go into a school year with a very contagious virus that we don't fully understand with one hand tied behind our back or two hands tied behind our back. And that's why, you know, I think the idea of using testing in schools, using masks in schools, until we can get to a vaccine and people have the discretion to try to protect their children through technology, we ought to take those steps. So I think what you're saying is very fair. Not only that, I think the way you're saying it is very fair. But there is, at the end of the day, a balance in the amount of instruction, in the amount of mandate that people are willing to accept. I'll give you a perfect example. My kids, probably like your kids, need to be vaccinated. My youngest is in high school, so she's a senior. Her sports league of all vaccinated kids... So this is the only upper school, all of them over the age of 12. Her sports league just mandated that in addition to all being vaccinated, every child involved, this is the Independent School League of Washington, D.C., every child needs a PCR test every single week. You know, I got to tell you, and I'm, I'm somebody who, you know, does believe the science, is vaccinated, would get a third shot if someone offered it to me, and didn't hesitate to get my kids vaccinated as early as possible, I would consider taking my kid out of sports because it's just too much. What do you think about parents who feel that way? Look, I think this gets back to the question about when are we going to be able to be a society that can coexist with this virus? Because we're going to have to be a society that coexists with this virus. And the extreme steps we're taking right now can't persist in perpetuity. We can't keep kids in masks for, you know, forever in schools. We can't do this level of testing constantly and putting people in quarantine. I think there's still a couple of things that need to happen, though, until we can get the American psychology in a sort of more level place around this virus. One is being able to vaccinate more vulnerable people that people who are worried about this virus worry about, and that's particularly the children. And two, I think prevalence levels need to come down. When you have, right now, 80,000 people hospitalized is down a lot. When you're having 100,000 people hospitalized for the virus and 2,000 deaths a day, that's too much. That is actually too much to sustain on the healthcare system. You cannot sustain that in perpetuity. So we have to get this under better control. I think we're going to get there, unfortunately, the hard way because we're going to infect a lot of people, which is what we're doing. So all the holdouts who haven't gotten vaccinated are going to end up getting infected. That's not the right way, I think, to acquire immunity. A lot of them are going to pay a heavy price for being infected. But on the back end of this Delta wave, I think that prevalence levels will decline, hospitalizations will decline, deaths will decline, and we'll be at a point where we can start to more actively contemplate trying to coexist with this virus in a more normal way. That still means I think we're going to do things differently going forward. I think we have to improve air quality in buildings. We have to put in HEPA filters. We shouldn't have tolerated all the death and disease from flu every year. Probably think about ways to de-densify congregate settings in the height of flu and COVID season in the wintertime. People will be wearing masks optionally. I think vaccine mandates are going to be more commonplace in congregate settings and workplace settings where the vaccine is the only tool 
to protect the workforce. So there's going to be things that are different on the back end of this, but I think tolerable. They're not going to be intrusive into our daily lives the way the things that you describe are. So Rochelle Walensky sort of freaked people out a few weeks ago when she said that her great fear was that we'll have a variant that can evade the vaccines and the impact that that could have. You just said that that's probably unlikely. But let's say that did happen. The mRNA vaccine... It's going to happen. We already have variants that partially evade the vaccine. The question is, whether they'll become are we going to wake up one day? Yeah, and, and there's, a, there's a new variant sweeping across the whole country, and the vaccines just don't work against it. I think it's going to be more of a gradual evolution. The tail risk is what you described, yeah. something like dramatic happening. Whether it's slow-moving or fast-moving, the mRNA technology is so adaptable, you could basically turn around a vaccine to target that specific variant with pretty fast speed. How long would it take one for like Pfizer or Moderna to actually make that vaccine in a lab? And then how long would it take to get that out to the American people if we had that kind of a variant? Probably about three months soup to nuts. Coming up with the vaccine construct, being able to test it and mass produce it or start mass producing it. And we already have a Delta variant vaccine in our back pocket, both Moderna and Pfizer does. I'm obviously on the board of Pfizer. So the technology allows for precisely what you described. Now, is it possible that, that the virus can mutate the spike protein in a way that it's hard to engineer an mRNA sequence that could replicate the new features of the spike protein? Anything's possible. It's unlikely anything's possible. The fact that the virus hasn't figured out how to do this yet is a pretty good indication that this is actually quite hard. Because remember, what's happening is we're acquiring immunity by developing antibodies against a very specific region on the virus's surface called its spike protein, but not just the spike protein, the very tip of the spike protein. Our antibodies target that very tip of the spike protein. That very tip of the spike protein is also what the virus uses to attach to our cells. It latches onto our ACE2 receptors in the lining of our lungs, and that's how it gets into our cells. So the virus has to say to itself, okay, I have to change this tip of a protein, the conformation of this very tip of this protein enough so that this human body no longer recognizes it, but it still has to be very effective at latching onto the human receptors. And it happens to be the case that the qualities that make it a good binding protein also are the qualities that make it easy for our immune systems to recognize. So, so far, it hasn't been able to figure out how to thread that needle. Will it? It'll do it partially over time, but what we haven't seen is a dramatic new introduction of a new variant that just completely evades our immunity and spreads efficiently. So, Scott, you talked about the hospitalizations that are going on now. The vast mass of these hospitalizations are obviously going on among the unvaccinated. Your chance of dying from COVID is, according to the CDC, 11 times greater if you are unvaccinated. And we're seeing a lot of actually sort of very loudmouth anti-vaxxers now coming down with COVID and some of them actually dying, which is tragic. But there is still this reflexive hostility to medical mandates from government, some of which I think, you know, all of us understand and sympathize with, some of which, you know, I think a lot of us find strange. You did uh, our friend Bill Frist's podcast, and you said something, and I want to dig into what you actually meant. You said there's a community impact to your decision to get vaccinated. So I think the community should be empowered to make a decision about the community standards. What do you mean? Do you think this is a local thing? How do you feel about the whole question? Yeah, I think it's a local thing. 
look, the federal government is well within its right to mandate vaccination for the federal workforce. I mean, it's a question of federal workforce readiness. If they make that judgment, the military, I think healthcare providers should be required to be vaccinated for COVID. We require them to be vaccinated for hepatitis B. We require them to be vaccinated for chickenpox. We require them to be vaccinated for flu for a reason, because that's the only way that we can protect the patient population and reduce the likelihood that infections are going to be transmitted by providers. I think COVID should be no different. But I think when you're talking about small businesses, private businesses, that's a decision that should be made at the local level, because I don't believe that your decision to be vaccinated is just your personal choice and nobody else should intervene in that decision. Because ultimately, your decision to get vaccinated is affecting your immediate community. If you're working in a confined space, where you're bringing an infection to that confined space and putting other people at risk if you're working in a nursing home. So there's a collective element to that decision. But insofar as there's a collective element to that decision, I think the decision about mandating that people do it should be made by the collective element, whether it's a job, a work site that believes that they can't protect their workforce or their customers unless their employees are vaccinated, whether it's a local school district that says, look, we have bad physical infrastructure. There's no way we can keep kids six feet apart or retrofit our air filtration systems. Really, the vaccine is the only tool that we have to try to protect the kids and keep outbreaks from happening in the school setting. That's where the decision should be made. So I don't think governors should be telling private businesses and local school districts they can't mandate the vaccine. And I don't think the federal government should be telling them right now that they have to. So that's where I come out on this. I think it's a collective decision that should be made at the unit in which the collective group is impacted by those individual decisions. Biden said something the other day, which I found absolutely shocking. He said, we have to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated. I understand there are people who are immunocompromised or at higher risk, but if I'm vaccinated, let's say Danny was unvaccinated, we're sitting here doing this podcast and she has COVID and she's spewing her aerosols into the studio. I'm not going <laughs> to die sitting from that. right next to him. <laughs> I'm vaccinated. I trust the vaccines. I'm okay. I may get a breakthrough infection. I, I might get a cold, uh, the sniffles. In a very rare case, I might get I might get a little bit more seriously ill, but I'm safe. She's a risk to herself, you know, in more ways than one. Uh, but <laughs> but she's not a risk to me, is she? Look, it's a risk to you. And we've seen situations where people have had, even vaccinated people have had bad, bad outcomes, but the risk is very low. You are right that the vaccine is proven to be very protective against hospitalization, severe disease, and certainly death in the vaccinated population. So I don't think that getting vaccinated is to protect you from, you know, I, I don't, I don't agree <laughs> with that. that, that <laughs> from Danny. I don't, I don't think that that's the sort of rationale. If Pfizer could come up with a vaccine to protect me from Danny, would you please do it? <laughs> Jackass. <laughs> not sure what that would cost. <laughs> I'm willing to pay it. <laughs> He's not, though, you know. Now, so, I mean, I think, look, you, you've given, you know, you've given very thoughtful and very rational answers. It does beg the question why we can't have a single freaking elected official who can give thoughtful and rational answers or of, of either public party. Official. Just to back up, Mark, the only place where you're trying to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated I think, where that statement is operative, is in a nursing home. Where you, yeah, or, sure. you know, a congregate setting where you clearly have a vulnerable population, that even with the vaccine, if you're going to repeatedly expose that population to the virus, eventually you're going to see breakthrough infections and bad outcomes. So that's why I think it's so important to get people in these healthcare settings vaccinated. Look, I think almost a majority, I mean, it's almost a majority, almost half of the deaths occurred in nursing homes. That was certainly true in the first waves of infections. It's not true anymore because the infection has spread deeper into the community. But we were at one point 
losing 7,000 people a week in nursing homes back in you know, the first wave of this infection. So we know those settings are very vulnerable. That's where I think that a statement like that is operative. And that's why I think mandating vaccination among healthcare workers makes sense. So exit question from me. You've been more than generous with your time. You know, we've spent a lot of time talking about, well, me and Mark. And so, you know, that's a typical podcast. But we spent a lot of time talking about the United States, about Europe. You use the formulation, you know, the West. At a certain point, our eyes are going to turn more persistently to those parts of the world that either have not been vaccinated or have used the sort of the shoddy vaccines that have come out of China or out of Russia and who are seeing either variants or recurrence. What do you see as the trajectory and the risk and outcomes here? Well, look, I think that the challenge for getting the vaccine distributed around the world is going to be the distribution, getting the boots on the ground, the logistics in place, especially in austere settings. The WHO and other officials are talking about this being a supply issue because I think as long as they can talk about being a supply issue, it obviates the need for them to talk about being a distribution issue. And the distribution is clearly on the WHO. They haven't done what I think they should be doing. They haven't done nearly what they need to be doing to actually get logistics on the ground in countries to mass vaccinate populations in austere settings. As far as the supply, they can continue to talk about that maybe for another couple of months, maybe three months, but we are going to reach a point where there's an excess of supply. Collectively, the Western manufacturers and the you know, European manufacturers are going to produce between 10 and 15 billion doses of vaccine over the next 12 months. That might even be a conservative estimate because it assumes that certain entrants won't enter the market who could. But just to sort of break that down, Pfizer will do 4 billion doses probably. Moderna has said they'll do three. The Serum Institute in India has talked about doing 4 billion doses. J&J is ramping up and they'll do millions of doses. AZ is going to do millions of doses. The Chinese are manufacturing millions of doses. So are the Russians. Sanofi is going to enter this market, I believe, with a protein-based vaccine that they'll be able to mass produce. You add that up and you're at 10 billion to 15 billion doses. Last I checked, the global population, I think, was 7.6 billion people. We've already distributed about 6 billion doses of vaccine globally. We don't have that much to go. We're going to have more vaccine than people who haven't received a vaccine at some point over the next 12 months. And so then it's going to be a question of how do we get it into the places where those people are. And that's going to fall squarely on the WHO, which is now spending most of its time browbeating the West for giving their population boosters because it's somehow taking away from supply and they're pretending this is a zero-sum game when it's not. So Danny asked her exit question. I actually have two questions left. All right, uh, Mark. We know you need to learn more than I do. Well, that is true. I think you have a fascinating section of the book talking about how the intelligence community needs to play a bigger role in pandemic preparedness and in pandemic early warning. So I want you to talk a little bit about that, but also Talk about the threat of bioterrorism. We just marked the 20th anniversary of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. And the goal of al-Qaeda in that attack was to bring down the U.S. economy, to cause widespread damage and all the rest of it. And, you know, we recovered pretty quickly economically from that. But then they look at the pandemic that we've just experienced and say, now that's the way to go. What is the danger of terrorists obtaining a bioweapon and using this as inspiration to carry out a biological attack on our country that could paralyze us like the pandemic did? I talk about getting the foreign intelligence services more engaged in this mission because historically we've relied on the public health community and multilateral engagement between public health institutions to inform us of emerging infections that could be the spark that lights the flame of the next pandemic. And we've seen time and time again 
countries conceal information not be forthcoming. China was extremely secretive, withheld information. To this day, still hasn't shared the source strains of SARS-CoV-2. And this has happened over and over again. I mean, SARS-1, the Chinese government, I talk about this in the book, didn't finally reveal that they had an epidemic of SARS-1 until someone brought the infection into Toronto and the Canadian sequenced it and realized it was a novel coronavirus. Up until that point, the Chinese government was saying that it was a fungal infection and hadn't admitted the full scope of the cases that were occurring in China. So this has happened time and time again. So we are going to go to the World Health Assembly again. We're going to all hold hands and we're going to say, we're going to share information we really mean at this time. Promise. I don't think we can rely on that anymore. That's what we did last time. That's what we did at the SARS-1. So I think we're going to have to get our tools of national security more engaged in doing surveillance around this mission. That's always been taboo with the public health community. They didn't want the national security apparatus anywhere near this. They felt it would erode their mission, that everyone with a white coat would be perceived to be a spy. I don't think we can afford the luxury of that kind of thinking anymore. In terms of the bioterrorism risk, you know, this hurt us a lot more than it hurt every other country in the world. It was an asymmetric risk to Western democracies. We proved uniquely challenged to implement respiratory precautions. Our dense cities and open society and, you know, rapid transportation proved very conducive to the spread of respiratory pathogens. Industrialized nations generally are more vulnerable to the spread of respiratory pathogens. And so the old notion was, and you know this, Mark, you, and both of you know this, you know, that, that respiratory pathogens weren't optimal weapons of a would-be bioterrorist or a nefarious actor because they would blow back on you. I think people looking in on this who want to do the West harm have to look at the calculus a little differently and say, huh, it hurt them a lot more than it hurt us. We were able to manage this and they weren't. And so if you want to at least incapacitate forward troop deployment or even an entire economy, a respiratory pathogen could be a very effective vehicle to do that as long as you have confidence that you're going to be able to control the spread long enough to you know, buy yourself time to get to a solution, or an antidote, a vaccine, whatever it might be. So I think it has to reset the calculus on how we look at the risks associated with novel respiratory pathogens, novel coronaviruses and flus, and how we put governance in place around high-end research in these BSL-4 labs and gain-of-function research and maybe put a moratorium on publishing novel strains, which is a recipe for anyone who has a sophisticated academic lab in any university to actually manufacture a novel pathogen. I mean, we shouldn't be publishing these sequences. We shouldn't be designing these sequences, and we shouldn't be publishing them. So I think the global community needs to come together and put better governance around this. And this is why the question of the origin of COVID is so important, because if you assess with a moderate degree of probability or higher, and this could have come out of the lab, it changes how you look at the governance of high-end research around the world. It has to do that. I've said this more than once, Scott, but this is exactly the kind of balanced, thoughtful, intelligent discussion that is totally missing from our public life. So I'm super grateful to you for contributing both with your book and joining us and being part of our AEI family. Thanks as always. Now I mean it. I say that, you know, as, as one of my former bosses used to say, from the heart. I mean, I just look at all the things that Scott was saying in real time while this pandemic was coming. And I just wonder if you had been in the FDA in a position of public office at the time, whether this would have been nearly as bad as what we've experienced over the last year. Thanks as always, <laughs> Scott. Take care and best of luck with the book. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Okay, Danny. So Scott is 
very generous to his colleagues in the public health sector. He calls out the mistakes, but he says it's the fog of war. I'll tell you, I don't always necessarily think it was the fog of war. I think that they thought in many cases that they knew what was best for us. I talked in the in the case of the masks, Dr. Fauci's advice and why I think that they told us not to wear masks. I think they wanted to make sure there wasn't a run on N95s and the healthcare workers who needed them. And so they misled us. And then later on, when they changed their advice... No one believed them because they could pull back all the quotes from Dr. Fauci and others saying masks don't work and you're going to touch your face and all the rest of it. We just had another example of this with the booster shots where the Biden administration said we're going to have boosters for everybody starting September 20th. And then the FDA advisory panel voted it down and only for high risk people. But one of the reasons that that was discussed in that, two of the people who are on that advisory panel had actually written that we should not be giving third doses to Americans when we haven't vaccinated first doses for people outside the United States. That should not have anything to do with the FDA's decision-making on whether to approve boosters or not. It should be simply based on, are the boosters safe and effective in preventing disease and whether this science shows that they should be used? But they're actually taking into account as part of their decision-making, holding back Americans from getting their third booster shot because we want more vaccine to be available for people who haven't gotten their first dose. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's, that's I, I really think that this is another example, and this is exactly why people don't trust the advice of the public health establishment, because they constantly tell us something and they're not upfront about the reasons for it. They're not telling us. Well, and the, and the, there's no legitimacy behind those yeah, reasons. Exactly. But I think at the yeah. right at the CDC, the the reality is suddenly they're foreign policy experts. It's yeah. absolute BS. It drives me out of my mind, and I wholeheartedly agree with you, especially in light of the facts that Scott just laid out to us, which is that we are going to have a surfeit of vaccines all too soon that our CDC is deciding that it should make recommendations or our FDA is deciding that they should make recommendations based on foreign policy considerations rather than on the health of the people who are paying their salaries. That's exactly right. So there you go. All right. So I want to ask you one thing that you and I have disagreed about in the past. You know, we don't need to get into a whole... Oh, Oh, I'm ready for you, Danny. Let's go. Let's go. Bring it on. Me spraying my germs on you as you so attractively laid out before. (laughs) So you're more hostile to vaccine mandates than I am. So I'm not hostile to vaccine mandates in the sense that I think people should not get vaccinated. I think everybody should get vaccinated. But one of the things Scott has said, and he didn't say it on the podcast now, but he said in several interviews, is taking something that should be a scientific question and turning it into a political question. And it's going to make mandates and resistance to vaccines a political cause. So I think it undermines the cause of getting people who are unvaccinated vaccinated by mandating it. I don't think it's an effective way to do it. And second of all, I do think that, you know, one of my favorite Rumsfeldisms, and I know you love I when I bring up Donald Rumsfeld, is, 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 is that free people are free to be wrong. Right. Right. And that the unvaccinated are a danger primarily and almost exclusively, not totally exclusively, but almost exclusively to themselves. And again, big exception for people who are immunocompromised. We have colleagues here at AEI who have had transplants transplants and things like that. I'm fully aware of that and understand that. As Scott said, in nursing home settings where people are very hospitals and all the rest of it, I can see having mandates. But generally speaking, for the general population, I'm vaccinated, assuming the government tells the truth and allows me to get my booster at some point. My immunity will be enduring. And if you're unvaccinated, you're a threat to yourself. You're not a threat to me. To not get vaccinated is a dumb decision. 
dumb health decision. But people make stupid health decisions all the time. People smoke. We don't ban cigarettes. People drink to excess and die of cirrhosis of the liver, and that has a cost in our health care system. People make all sorts of public health People eat too much. I'm a case in point. So there's lots of people making stupid public health decisions, including one in this room sometimes, right? And so, you know, I just think that, one, it's not effective, and two, free people are free to be wrong. And as long as I'm vaccinated, like when I'm reading, I actually still read the physical newspaper sometimes, Mm -hmm. and I read sometimes these advice columns, right? The thing that drives me crazy, these advice columns. Somebody, I'm going to an outdoor concert tomorrow, and I invited a friend, but I found out my friend is unvaccinated. Now I'm not comfortable anymore. What should I do? Inevitably, the advice is, well, you should cancel your concert because it's a, you should shame people who are unvaccinated. That person is no threat to you. There's no danger to you in an outdoor concert sitting next. To, first of all, if you give up that ticket and go, the person who you don't know sitting two seats ago might not be vaccinated either. We have to just, like, get vaccinated and live your life. The way I would put it, which I think you just did, is that everybody assumes some risk. In, in, a in of risk Right. Of, of course. Everything. everything. The decision to walk out that door is going to be a, a risk to the folks who are listening because that's just the way life is. But I do think there's a balance. And I agree with Scott that just as there has been a lot of politicized overstepping on mandates, there's also been a lot of politicized understepping. You, know, you may not mandate vaccines. That seems insane to me as well. Again, I think the fact that we are incapable of having an intelligent conversation about something that is so important is truly yet another reflection of our system just being a little bit screwed up. And everything has to be a balance, right? When did we put epidemiologists in charge of our economy? Oh, Sorry, that's but a whole like, other know, podcast. But, but I mean, at some point... Like, you know, we can get the best public health device to corral this virus as much as we possibly can. And there's a balance of risks there, too. Well, what is the risk to the economy? What is the risk to jobs? What is the risk to people's livelihoods? Mental health. What is the risk to mental health? What is the risk to suicide risk? What is the risk to kids losing tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands in lifetime income because they lost a year of school over a six-foot distancing rule that really had no science behind it. There are other factors we have to take into effect. As I said, 544 kids in America, maybe it's more, but the CDC official stata is 544 kids have died with a COVID diagnosis in their record. Not from COVID, not from COVID, with a COVID diagnosis. They may have died from COVID, but we don't know because the CDC can't call 544 doctors and ask them what their kids right. I don't died wa- from. So, you know, we don't even know how many kids have actually died from COVID in this country. But I tell you, it's probably less than a lot of other things that kids die from every day. And so are we really going to, you know, restrict schools and force everybody to wear masks and all the rest of it? There's a balance of risks, and I think we've we, we've we lost to, our ability. We've, we've lost, lost our, our ability yeah. to have that conversation. Well, we had it today with Scott, and uh, both Mark and I read Uncontrolled Spread. Both think really highly of it. Recommend that all of you go out and buy one, if not two. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for listening. Take care. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at aei.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 